The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to what? Pick up a collection. Bring me an offering, and you are to receive the offering for me. Now, just take note of this for a second if, uh, for, for a second if you are highlighting or underlining. God is saying that what is now going to happen is he's saying, I want you to tell the Israelites to bring Moses an offering? No. The uh, Tabernacle Fund Incorporated an offering? No. He's saying, bring who? God is saying, tell the Israelites they're going to bring their God an offering. You are to receive the offering on my behalf for me from each man, and take note of this, whose what? Heart prompts him to give. Another translation? Who gives willingly. Another translation? Cheerful. He says, tell them, ding, 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 ding. It's offering time to our God. But he's just going to tell them, only bring it from the people whose hearts prompt them to give. So Moses is going to tell the people, well, let me just read it here. These are the offerings. So Moses gets in front of the, he probably brings his elders around. Why say it, why shout it out to two or three million people when you just say it to 12 and then they can spread the word. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, uh, ram skins dyed red, hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. So Moses stands in front of the people and says, we're taking up an offering for the tabernacle? No. We're taking up an offering on behalf of God, and this is the list of things that is an acceptable offering at this time. This is what God is saying that he desires for you to bring. Now, each one of you guys is required to bring something. Is that what he says? He just says, hey, taking up an offering. You guys decide in your heart because giving is always a heart issue and it's, about, it's between us and God. That's what giving is, well, typically, let me say, it's supposed to be about us and God. People tend to make it about other things, like they need to replace their $20 million jet and stuff, so you need to give right away. That's not God's plan at all. He's just telling them, this is what God desires, this is what God is saying to bring, and he's saying, then just step away from it. So on behalf of God, it's for God, this is what it is. No pressure, no sales tax, no sales tax. No, what was I going to say? No sales tactics, that's right. No sales, (coughs) (coughs) no sales tactics or tax. He's not taxing the people, is he? Hey, you guys all, God just brought you out of here. You plundered the Egyptian. You know where they got all their wealth from, right? Remember, it said that God told uh, uh, Moses that when they come out of Egypt, that he's going to make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the Israelites. And then he tells them, go tell the people to ask their neighbors for articles of whatever they want. 
You know, hey, I like that gold statue there. Okay, hey, you can have it. Hey, I like that necklace you have. Okay, you can have it. I like that skirt. Hey, you can have a kind of a deal. And it says that they plundered. They took the wealth out of Egypt, and then Egypt also lost their military might, as well as their firstborn children uh, of the males throughout the land. Absolutely decimated them. And God says, because it's always about the heart, and God is saying, I want your offering to me to come from your heart, not from your head. Now take note of this, guys, because I know we have tithers in here. And the difficulty for a tither is sometimes just writing the check or putting the money in, whatever it may be. And it completely bypasses the heart because it's like, well, I'm supposed to give a tenth. I'm going to give a tenth. I'm not angry about it. I think it's great. And, and we can do our tithe. But guys, it's supposed to, it's supposed to run through our heart, not just through our head. Not just, I know that I should be doing this, or I know that it's important for me to do this. It's supposed to run through our heart where we at least stop for a moment and say, Lord, it's because of who you are that I can respond in this way back to you. Find what you need to do, but have some kind of a conversation with God before you drop it in that agape box. By the way, you know why we have the agape box? So that nobody ever feels um, forced to give. Because it could kind of be embarrassing. You know, the offering plate's over here, and Karen puts in a 20, and Bill puts in a 50, and Willie puts in a 100, and then Kathy's like, oh, man. I only got a five on me. Could you take a, a visa or something? And then all of a sudden she's like, you know, I'm not saying, I shouldn't even say Kathy. The next person in line, the person who normally sits right there, might be looking and all of a sudden the plate gets them. They're the fourth person. They're seeing these big bills and they're like, oh man, well, I was just going to put in a five and they've got their wallet out. Well, maybe I need to go ahead and put a 20 because, you know, everybody else gave at least that much. Do you know how easy it would be to, could be to fall into that? Seeing what everybody else gave? And then you're like, or just the idea of, well, I don't want to be the person that touches the plate and doesn't do what? Put anything in. I've seen the obligatory people pull out the two bucks and put it in the plate just to satisfy that thing of, uh, I've paid for my place here today. I don't think two bucks are going to pay for, for anybody's place on a Sunday but, or on a Tuesday, but that's the mentality sometimes. I've, I've paid, well, there's my contribution and so forth. And it's more out of guilt than it is out of love and responding to God because of his love for us. We talked a few weeks ago about giving. And it's really in response to God's grace. It's, giving is really, on our, on our end, it's really all about God's grace to us. You see, the wealth that all of these Israelites have how did they get it? They had nothing, and God gave them everything. It was an act of what? Grace. They've received something that they didn't deserve, and now God is saying, heart check. Hey, come bring an offering, guys, and when we give, it is reciprocating we are showing, we become the example of God's grace. We're like, I understand your grace upon my life. And because of your grace, I want to respond to who you are, my great God and King. That's really, giving is, God doesn't need the money, right? I always say this, and I think it's important for us to remember. Giving is not God's way of raising money. It's not God's way of what? 
raising money. Let me say that again. You guys say it with me. Giving is not God's way of raising money, but it's his way of raising children. It's his way of raising us up, bringing us into maturity. Somebody who doesn't know those basic things about giving and so forth, they will never grow into a mature Christian. Never, ever get there. And so God says, tell the Israelites, bring me an offering, each man whose heart prompts him to give. Meaning God does not want anything from the heart that is reluctant to give. He loves the cheerful giver, the one who's looking for the opportunity. Verse 8 says this. After the offering, this is kind of interesting. Then make a sanctuary for me. It's kind of interesting. We do it backwards today. We start building and then we start out. Well, we ask for money up front. Then we start building without having what we need. And then we really beg people to pay off what we built because we never originally had the money we needed. And now we're scrambling and saying, hey, pay this off. You guys have a responsibility. Let's get this done. And then becomes all these drives of, hey, the next generation, we need to get this accomplished for them. And what happens? You start pulling what? Start pulling the heartstrings. I know somebody one time, saddest thing ever, woman was on her deathbed. And it's not a place too far from here. Pastor went and visited her in the hospital had some paperwork, and wanted her to sign over a portion of her estate to pay off the building fund. (sighs) Guys should be taken out of the pulpit. Absolutely. Going and asking somebody who is a widow, who is about to die, hey, how would you, wouldn't you like to go ahead and donate some of your estate to the church? We've got some things to pay off. And you really could go a long ways in making that happen. Guys, I don't like that at all. I don't think God's pleased with that either. I like the idea that God will provide if he desires it. And that's what he does here, isn't it? Take up an offering and then go and make a sanctuary for me. And why I'm here, let me just make note of this. It is why... I never want to put this fellowship, and you may say, well, maybe that's why you might just have a small fellowship the rest of your life. I don't care how big the fellowship is. (laughs) But I never want to put the fellowship under financial obligation and strain. Because if we owe a million dollars, if the church owes a million dollars, you guys owe a million dollars, is what it's saying. You guys have taken on the responsibility. It's where the whole thing of pledge comes in. And we've talked about that when somebody can't meet their pledge and they're like, oh man, now I can't pay my bills. What comes over them? Guilt and shame. And then what what happens next? They wander away from the church. It is not God's way of doing business. I know that church has to have a business structure to it, but we do not have to run the churches the way that businesses. Matter of fact, I think most businesses run better than the way that churches do business. Then I will make a sanctuary for me. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. This is God's goal. He wants to be with them. He wants to have his presence there. And he says, make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings kind of, somewhat, 
consider, con- maybe you've got some good ingenuity there. Uh, maybe Moses has, um, you know, he was skilled in, in all of the ways of Egypt. I'm sure he had some engineering classes and so forth. He doesn't say that, does he? Make it exactly like the pattern I will show you. Meaning God is saying this. There is a way that this is to be built, and it is to be built according to my ways, not your ways. Let me say, there is a way that God desires to build his church, and it is not according to what? Our ways, but it's according to what? His ways. I mentioned a few, I mentioned in the last week, sorry, I'm getting my Sundays and Tuesdays mixed up, about the pastor had a church here and just had explosive growth. And after that time, he publicly admitted that he hadn't walked with the Lord in a year and a half during all of that growth. But you know what? The advertising, the mailers, the bands, the lights, the fog, the music, the stage, the entertainment, all of that, it drew people in and people were saying, and I remember having this conversation several times with a, with a particular individual. Their point was, but it's growing. And then a year and a half later, he comes out and he says, I haven't walked with the Lord in a year and a half. This has been by the work of men. This has been by pure attraction of the flesh to get people here. It tells us this. Everything that has people attaining and gathering to it is not what? It's not of the Lord. Not everything. Not every building that has church or a cross on a steeple. Not every place that says that has the Spirit of God dwelling and moving and working that place. What we know is this. The Word was brought, and it says, and the Spirit added to the church daily. I am interested in people becoming followers of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, accepting him as Lord, and secondly, to be discipled by his word, by who he is. That's my desire. And I never want to pull somebody in. You know, I, I have to have a little balance in my life, even with band in hand. I mean, isn't that the coolest thing ever, by the way? I mean, you know, just separate from the Bible study. Isn't that pretty cool? I mean, Lindsay has worked very, very hard. And, and I want to say, not, yeah, bragging on you, that, that God has given her um, some, some, some great abilities. I was telling Angela, uh, she was practicing, and we were back in the room, and we had the lights off. I mean, that's not important. Um, <laughs> and so, turn the lights on, Brad. Um, and I said, it's so great that we have somebody who leads worship that can sing well. Because that's not always the case. It's great to have somebody who can lead worship and who can play well. And what I mean by singing well and playing well is they're not a distraction. They don't take away from, they only add to the opportunity to worship. I don't care if, you know, if Stu can get up here and do a face-shredding, face-melting guitar solo and so forth. Some people in church think that that's, you know, the cat's meow. I don't think that that's really worship to God. I think that's vain entertainment. I think that's attraction of men. Hey, we got a good, that was a good solid one. We have another one? Anyone else have that gurgling up at all? Let me say this, then we move on. God has work that he desires to do, and God can only accomplish God's work. 
but he can and he desires to accomplish his work through us. Not by power, by our power, not by our what? Not by strength. Power, strength, might, right? You guys, I've said that thing a hundred times. God desires to do the work through us. Now, verse 10. Have them make a a chest of acacia wood, uh, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide and a cubit and a half um, high. So essentially, we're talking about the ark here. The ark is a what? A simple word for it is a box or a chest, okay? Roughly four foot by two foot. Okay, that's all it is. Just this little one right here. Don't be, don't be confused at seeing Indiana Jones straining to pick that ark up off. You guys remember? They really, he and Saul, I think it was. Man, they really, you think that thing weighed like 1,200 pounds. And they're like sitting here, you know, and so forth. No, it was just, it's just this big. But let me say, something of wood color, uh, covered in solid gold is going to be pretty heavy. By the way, as we go through this, you're going to find that there's a lot of gold in the tabernacle. And they estimated that just in the tabernacle, there's about a ton of gold. Because we're going to see the candlesticks made out of gold. Everything in there's going to be gold all over the place. The boards are going to be covered in gold. The whole framing structure is going to be wood covered in gold and so forth. In today's value, now gold is worth more today than it was back then in, in essence. But at today's numbers, it would be about $35 million just in gold. Uh, there's about three tons of silver uh, that, was, uh, that, they, that they guesstimate was invested into this thing. So there was, when they're talking about moving this tent, it's a little bit more than just the, you know, roll it up, squeeze the air out as you roll it kind of a deal, right? And with a couple sticks and so forth. This is, this is a monument, but, but it is temporary. It is a tent. It's a structure that is to be moved. So here we are in the ark. And he says, overlay it, verse 11, with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them uh, to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with what? Gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to what? To carry it. The poles are to remain because the poles are used to do what to carry it because they're always they're only supposed to what carry it that's right so the poles are to remain in the rings of this ark they are not to be removed then put in the ark of the testimony which i will give you what what's another word for the ark of the testimony the ten commandments written on stone that's right it's going to put that inside of this box so he's making this box. So it tells us that these, you know, the, the tablets weren't real big. You know, they had to be a size that, that a man could carry down a couple of them and so forth. But enter, but, so there's an interesting thing about it. So there's two main uh, characteristics made up um, of this box. It's going to be the wood, the acacia wood. And, uh, and the, the interesting thing, there's a lot of interesting characteristics about the acacia wood. Uh, it's kind of impervious to rotting, to, to insects, to disease and so forth. But, Everything in, uh, you guys need, we need to stop here for a second. Everything that we talk about, about the tabernacle, everything that we talk about, about the tabernacle, it is, it has its fulfillment in who do you think? Jesus. 
We're in the volume of the book. It is written of me, meaning that when we go through here, this is all about Jesus. This box is about Jesus. The gold is about Jesus. The acacia wood is about Jesus. The lid is about Jesus. The tablets are about Jesus. The jar of manna is about Jesus. Uh, Aaron's budded staff, it's about Jesus. All of this is about who? Jesus. So everything, every material, every stone, everything that we see here, from the high priest to the Levites, how they carry stuff, this is all about who? Jesus. Now God says this. The wood speaks of um, Christ's humanity, the acacia wood, his humanity. The gold speaks of his deity. Now think about this for a second, because this is hard for us to get. Jesus is God in flesh. 100% God and 100% man. Meaning that for God to save mankind has to be has to be in the form of, of flesh dying, of blood being shed. So the sacrifice has to be of flesh. It has to have flesh and blood. But in order for it to be an eternal sacrifice, meaning that the sacrifice just has to be made once for all time, it has to be what? Eternal or, yeah, God. So the sacrifice, it has to be, of human form, but also deity. So here we have this box. The wood speaks of his, of his humanity. The gold speaks of his deity. This is who Jesus is. He is God in flesh. He's 100% God, 100% man. And then God makes something very, he notes them. He says, verse 14, insert poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to simply carry it. And this is the way it's always to be relocated. Nobody touches what? Nobody touches the box. Nobody touches the ark. Even the great high priest or the high priest, he doesn't touch the box. Once they make this box and they put it in there, nobody can touch this box. It's going to have something interesting inside of it. And what did God say you're going to put inside of it? Yeah, the law. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The law always shows man his death, essentially. It's his death sentence. And God says, you carry this ark. Now, I want you to see something here. Second uh, Samuel, if you go to your right, Second uh, Samuel 6, and then we're, uh, you can keep your place there once you get there, and we're going to be hitting First uh, Samuel 6. But Second Samuel 6, And 2 Samuel is right after, good job. And what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is David, now um, he's taken Jerusalem, has become the capital of Israel. Uh, he now wants to bring the ark to Israel, or, uh, or to Jerusalem, I'm sorry. He wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so it says this, uh, verse 1, David, again, brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from uh, Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, we're going to find out when we go to 1 Samuel chapter 6 why the ark was at that particular place or in that area. 
and it had been there uh, for a little while. The name of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Verse 3. This is going to make us feel very smart. They set the ark of God on a new cart. And what do we say? Oh, that's not good. Because the very first thing God told Moses is, put little rings on it, put little poles through it, and do what? Carry it. That's not hard to know, is it? Don't you feel so smart? Because now we've got, you know, right? Hindsight, we've got all that. They set the ark of God on a new cart. What could be so wrong with that? What is wrong with that? Just not what God said. I mean, God could have said, you know, create, you know, I don't know, a wheel in the center of it and wheel it around and so forth. And then we said, that's crazy. We should just do it like this. But it's not what God said. God has a purpose for everything that he does. They brought it from the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, son of uh, Adimadad, uh, were guiding the what? The new cart. Take note, what kind of cart is it? It's a new cart. You're going to need that for 1 Samuel 6. With the ark of God on it, Heo was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Songs and harps and lyres, tambourines, uh, sistrums and cymbals. Everybody is praising the Lord. Who's the only person who's not happy with the situation? God. When they came to the threshing floor of uh, Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God. Because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and died there before the ark of God. What did he do that was so wrong? I mean, that's just heinous, isn't it? I mean, how horrible he touched the ark. Doesn't really seem that big of a deal to us. Didn't seem like that big of a deal to him. But it's monumental to God. Because God's word had said, Nobody touches this. So if he lets somebody touch it and he lets them go, what happens to God's word? God no longer is God. He's no longer true. He's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. Well, David, it says then, verse 9, he was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to Obed-Edom for three months, verse 11 tells us. By the way, at the end of verse 11, it says that uh, Edom the Gittite, Obed-Edom the Gittite is the guy who they left the ark at his house for three months, no doubt a a Levite. And, um, uh, And the Lord blessed him and his entire household because the ark was there. Now, King David was told the Lord has blessed the house out of Obed-Edom and everything he has because the ark of God, because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those, verse 13, who were, what? Carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, the number of man, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And then David's going to make his way on up into Jerusalem. All that was needed was obedience to the word of God. That was all that was needed. It's always interesting how differently things go when there's obedience to God's word. Easier said than done. True? Say true that almost. huh? But here's a good example. Now keep your place because you're going to go back or, you know, just kind of keep your place there in 1 Samuel 6 because we're going to go there in a minute. Carry it. Carry the 
tablets that are inside of the ark, the tablets of the law. It's interesting that what God says is there's going to be a day when he pours out his spirit upon mankind and he is going to write his word, not on tablets of stone, but how? Where? On men's hearts. Who carries? Catch this. Who now carries the word of God? We do. Not only that, but we're called priests, aren't we? Peter tells us. We're priests. Priests. And we carry God's word, not on tablets of stone, but where? We carry it. We carry with us the truth of who he is. Now take note of this. Because we don't, we don't just need to carry the reality that Jesus, Jesus has died for you, get saved, and everything will be good. Guys, we need to give people the full understanding of God's word, which means this. According to God's word, it's not that God's a hater. According to God's word, you're sinful. You're guilty of sin. You're living a life contrary of who he is. And for you to pay for your sin... It means death of yourself, eternal death. No, you can't do it on your own. For all have sinned, and that's a good place. This kind of goes under the Old Testament, the, the, the First Testament. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Old Testament. For the law came through Moses. But, Romans would tell us, the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See why it's so important to know those verses, guys? God has really impressed upon my heart, and I would really, I would really like for you guys to take it seriously. It is important to know those two verses so that you can clearly communicate to people the difference between the Old Testament law and grace and truth of the New Covenant. If we do not have a very clear understanding and picture of what that is, we ourselves will go into legalism, we will lead people there, or we will condemn people into legalism. And what we're going to find on Sunday morning is that we're going to find that as Paul gets into Jerusalem, where there are supposed to be thousands of believers at this particular time, what you're going to find is the believers there in Jerusalem are going back to the temple to do temple worship. They're going back under what? Law. That's why the book of Hebrews is written. It's telling people that if you try to go back under that system, there is no sacrifice that is left for your sin. Jesus is the only one who can sacrifice for your sin. There's nothing left that you can do. Stop killing the fatted calf or the oxen. Stop it. There's nothing left. And Paul is going to find when he goes back there that there are the Jewish believers who are caught back up in temple worship. They've gone back under law. And when somebody goes back under law, catch this. When somebody goes back under law, what they are stating is that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient. They may say, oh, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but I still have to do this, this, and this. What that means is Jesus' sacrifice was not enough to completely save them, that it's up to them to go the rest of the way. Go read your homework this week. Read the book of Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to finish the work in the flesh? They were going back into legalism. Paul would say, if we are an angel or anybody else brings you a gospel other than the one that we preach, let them be eternally condemned. If we are an angel or anybody else brings you a gospel other than what you've received, which is, parentheses, no gospel at all. 
let them be eternally condemned. Paul was serious about it. If anybody else comes and adds to our message, tells you you got to do this, man, to hell with them. Eternal condemnation for leading men into hell. Guys, we need to have a very clear, precise, crystal clear understanding of what this battle is because this is what I believe is on our horizon. Ritualistic worship is on the rise. And I'm not, I haven't read an article about this. But when I, when I just, I keep loose, every night I, I scan, I, I scan uh, two or three websites for just, and I just look at the titles to kind of get an idea of what's going on and it kind of makes a mosaic in my mind. There is a rise in ritualistic worship. Take note of this. One of the fastest growing religions right now is Catholicism. It is, it is, it's like on, it's wildfire right now. I mean, people are flocking to Catholicism. Why? They love the ritualistic aspect of it. They love what you see and what you hear and what you smell and and the beauty and all of this and the grandeur. And guys, we are coming back. Watch it. We're coming back to ritualistic worship. We're seeing a rise in witchcraft, huge rise in witchcraft. And all, when you think of witchcraft, what do you think? Spells, incantations, you know, little symbols, iconic symbols and all of that. Iconic symbols are coming back into the church. All these things are coming back around again. We need to be very clear in what we proclaim, what is truth and what is false. Because guys, there's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of Christians out there who even understand the concept of a sacrifice for men's sin, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. You go find 10 of your closest Christian friends, and you ask them what that means, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins, and you, you find out, test this, how many of them know what that even means. My hope would be that 10 out of 10 would know. That would be my hope. The reality is, I don't know how many you might get. Some of you guys who your friends are Christians who have been in church a little bit longer may have a little bit more of a leg up, but the reality is we need to be very, very sharp on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. John chapter 1, verse 17. And I'll add to it next week. Let's stand and pray. Okay. Okay, we'll go through verse 22. We're not there to 1 Samuel 6 yet. We got to get into the next section. <laughs> okay. Okay, I don't want to, okay, give me 35 minutes. I had made a covenant with myself that I was going to go to a certain time. (laughs) Just broke that. That's a lawbreaker there, isn't it? (laughs) Make an atonement cover, also known, you should write this above that word there, mercy seat. Make a mercy seat. Think about this. 
make a mercy seat, an atonement cover of pure gold, right? Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half white, four by two, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold uh, at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. So it's going to have two cherubs facing one another, one on each end. They're only four foot apart. Um, make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. Isn't that amazing? So they're going to make this whole cover and the two cherubs. It's all going to be out of one solid piece of gold. Absolutely amazing craftsmanship. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them, and the cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. There's so much in this passage of Scripture here. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of the testimony, also known as the Ten Commandments I will give you. And there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Without that cover, there can be no mercy. God understands this. Man in a fallen state... God's situation is this. He's holy. He's righteous. He can't just ignore man's sin. He can't turn an eye to it because he gave a command. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Now, all of his creation, mankind that he has created, that he has created to what? Worship him. All that he has created to worship him, as far as mankind, is now what? It's dead. Now mankind's not going to worship God. So God, we know that God desires that none would perish, but that all would, what? Have eternal life. That's his desire. That's his heart. So now he's got a situation. He's holy. He's righteous. Inside this box is the, the Ten Commandments. What do the Ten Commandments do? Yeah, that's my best sign for kill, okay? Not having, okay, kill, right, okay? Kill, kind of a deal. The, the law kills. Where is God? He's hovering between what? The two cherubim. That's where he says, I'm going to meet you. The glory of God is hovering right there. So if mankind, even if, even if the high priest without the cover on there walks in behind the curtain, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. By the way, if you're there, go to 1 Samuel 6. Very important, very important truth here. I'm going to speak fast. So now this is, this is predating what we saw in 2 Samuel 6. And uh, the ark is going to end up at the place where we saw it there in, in 2 Samuel 6. Uh, 6.1, uh, the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months. The Philistine called for the priests and the diviners and said, uh, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to the Israelites. So essentially... What had happened is the Philistines had captured the ark. Eli's sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, lost it in battle, and, uh, and the Philistines had it, and they're like, woo, woo, we got, we got the power because, let me just say this, in that day they believed that, um, that gods were territorial. So if you fought, and, and we'll, see this, uh, we'll see this in Scripture, there's one battle in Scripture where uh, the people— they fought a battle down in the valley, and, and they lost that battle. They thought, well, maybe our God's not in the valley. Maybe he's up on the mountaintop. So then the next battle, they staged the battle to be where? Up on the mountaintop. They lose that one. You know, okay, so their God's not with them. They thought that gods were territorial, but the Israelites' God seemed to go with them wherever they went. 
So now what happens is hopefully in Phineas, they go into battle using God as the magic genie in a box. And they thought, surely if we take God there, we're going to win the battle. Well, they get, they get whooped up. The Philistines take the ark. The Philistines are like, yeah, we got the, the power of the Israelites. We have taken their power, their God, away. And God strikes them down. They get these tumors growing on their bodies. These rats and so forth are invading the land, and, and it's just terrorizing. The Philistines are like, ah, we can't take it anymore. They had it for seven months. Look at that, six one, seven months, and they're like, we got to get this thing out of here because we're getting trampled by their God, trampled. And so they say, they get their smart people, the priests and their diviners, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back. Verse 3, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. By all means, send a guilt offering to him, then you'll be healed, and you will know why his hand has um, not been lifted from you. And the Philistine asks, what guilt offering should we send? Uh, five gold tumors, five gold rats, according to the number of the rulers, uh, because uh, the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors of the rats that are destroying the country. Pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and the gods in your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Look at this. They're looking back and all the way to the Egyptians. Why, when he treated them harshly, did they not send the Israelites out so that they could go on their way? Verse 7. Key here. Now then, get a... <laughs> oh, where, where did David and the boys get the idea to transfer the cart back to Jerusalem? Yeah, they got it. Hey, if the Philistines do it, it must be good for me, right? If your friends do it, are you going to do it, Jason? Get a new cart ready with the two cows. And then essentially, um, they're going to send the cows. I don't have time to tell you. It's really cool what they do there. You should read the rest of the chapter. Put that down as homework. Um. In verse 19, sorry, so essentially what they do is they, they, uh, they take um, two cows that have calves and they, uh, they put the ark on there and they put the, the tumor, the gold tumors and the rats and so forth. They send it off. You'll have to read about why that's important for, for the two mama cows and all of that to go. Um, it makes it way back into Israelite territory. And, um, and then we pick up here in verse um, 19. So now it has come back to the, into Israelite territory. God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh. These are Israelites. Putting 70 of them, your translation may say 50,000. There's a lot of uh, discrepancy here because the Israelites, um, the way that they numbered things was with letters. So they believe it was a scribal error. They're not sure if there were 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh at that time. Either way, the point is putting 70 of them to death because they had what? Looked into the ark of the Lord. They didn't, well, I guess they did touch it, but they looked. You would hope that 50,000, you know, after the first few croaked, you know, that they'd stop looking. By the way, you remember Indiana Jones when they opened up the ark? Yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was, it was, yeah, it was, it, it was scary. I, it was scary when I was seven and saw that. Um, anyways, the point of it, back over to Exodus chapter 25. Why? Why did those men die in Beth Shemesh? Why did they die? Somebody tell me. They looked in the ark. They disobeyed the Lord's instruction. But what was it that brought death to them? Yeah. They stood face to face with the law. There was no atonement for them. There was no, what was the other word I said for atonement cover? 
there was no mercy seat between them and the law. You see, what God has created for mankind so that he is not destroyed because of the law, he has created a place of mercy. Between the law and God rests the what? The mercy seat or the atonement cover. That word also atonement is what we would see. It's the same word in the New Testament where it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the payment. The full propitiation is saying he is the full payment required for our sin. That is our Lord and Savior. That is why scripture tells us, let us approach the throne of grace that we will receive mercy and find our grace there to help us in our time of need. Because if man is left to stare in the face of law, he is eternally condemned, separated from God for all eternity. But scripture tells us God desires that none, what? Perish, but that all will come to eternal life. And God is showing them there's a way. See, all of this is typology. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is that one who is between us and God. He is the one who makes us right. As a matter of fact, the law isn't even in the equation with us and God anymore. It's just God, Jesus, and us. And he is now between us and God. Before, it was man, and he has to come face to face with the law. But that is why the high priest would go in that one time a year. And what would he do? He would first make a sacrifice for himself. Then he'd leave, come back. He'd make a second sacrifice for the sins, the unintentional sins of the people. And he would sprinkle that blood on the what? The mercy seat. Showing that one day in the future that God's scripture tells us in the Old Testament, you were never never satisfied with the blood of bulls and goats. That the blood of animals never satisfied you, but it was a temporary satisfaction, you might say, until the time that the Savior could come into the world and could offer himself. What was he on the cross? He was the Lamb of God. He was the sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Let's stand.